And uh, before we talk business, let's get to know a little bit about your background. So where are you from and why did you get into this industry? I grew up on Long Island. Um, immigrant dad, wasn't around much. Um, and uh, really awesome mom, Manhasset girl, born and raised, school teacher. Um, really weird sort of insecure childhood household. And uh, was always sort of grasping at what I perceived to be a desirable life, freedom. I, didn't, I felt like I didn't have a lot of freedom. Other kids at school had, had things that I didn't have, like poor kid in a rich town mentality, basically. Yeah. And so I was always trying to figure out basically a way out growing yeah. up. And so the outlet for that turned out to be reading books, particularly books on finance and investments from a young age. Um, and that led to a lot of curiosity and learning in, in the space of finance and investments. I got really excited about it. Um, I used to do really weird things and that ulti- and, and they're not exactly related to real estate investment, but you can kind of see how they develop into that. Right. Like for instance, when I was 13 years old, I, uh, I got really into reading about gold and precious metals. And I, I came to my mom with this pitch. I was 13 years right. old. She's a school teacher. Yeah. I'm like, mom, spent a couple months on this. I think that you should put all your life savings <laughs> into gold. Yeah. And I think just because I don't understand exactly what the mechanisms are for owning gold electronically, we right. should buy gold bars. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so Interesting. she thought I was insane. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I th- she had like probably $50,000 in savings or right. something. And like in her, in her teacher's <laughs> retirement. Yeah. She's like, there's no way I'm doing this. <laughs> she indulged me. Mm. She took a thousand dollars and at the time gold was, was really, really depressed. Right. And that was my whole thesis was right. like, it bounces back it moves in cycles. I didn't know anything. I was 13 yeah, years yeah. old, but I thought I knew something. <laughs> and it turned out that she, she gave me a thousand dollars to buy the gold. And we agreed that we'd split the upside right. and, and gold rallied, like it doubled it more than doubled in, in the span of like a year and a half or two years. I'm Amazing. paraphrasing. I don't remember exactly what the timing right. was. So like we go, we go to a we go to like a pawn shop two years later, wow. and we cash Tell out the business, bring these two like an American Eagle and a gold maple leaf to the pawn shop. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what the spreads were. I didn't know like what what the what what price I should be getting for right. the for the gold bullion relative to the spot price in the market at the time. But like I did really well with the right. investment, and like that was that's just an example of like when I was a kid, I was just reading into like anything and everything. And trying to develop a thesis around every different asset class. It wasn't just real estate. Real estate became my biggest asset right. class that I focus on the most for a lot of reasons that we'll go into. But yeah. it was just that's that's like that was me as a kid, right? That's and then uh, and and I don't know how, how far you want me to go after that. And so over the past couple of decades, you're still doing the same thing, but now with more information and more actual backing, more research, more of like having a business sense and and applying that to your business. Yeah, I think I think a really important way to look at uh, real estate, if you want to be successful long term, is to be a really good real estate investor or operator. You actually just have to be. You also have to be a really good not real estate investor or operator. Right. I think I think a big problem that we have today is that people who are who are confined to a specific asset class tend to just push their product. Right. So like a lot of real estate guys, most real estate guys you talk to that haven't been exposed to other asset classes will tell their LPs and their investors and their constituents that real estate is always the answer. Yeah. 
Real estate is an asset class. It's an investment like any other asset class. So in order to know when and how to find and, and, and be in a good deal in real estate, you have to know what the prospects are uh, and risk adjusted returns in all the other asset classes mm-hmm. are at a given time. Right. And you have to have at least enough knowledge about each to be dangerous in order to really sit in front of somebody and say, this is the best place to put your money in right now. Right. Or, or even this is not necessarily the best place, but this is the prospects of putting your money in my deal right. versus investing in equities or investing in bonds or buying gold coins with your mom and then taking them to a pawn shop. Right. right? <laughs> so that's so it's important yeah. to know about other opportunities in order to be able to fully present an opportunity correctly. Yeah. And so the, the real lesson is if you want to be in real estate long term, you really need to develop a view on on the other asset classes and investments available. Right. At least a cursory view. Yeah. Right. Nobody becomes an expert overnight, but day by day you want to be reading and getting yourself exposed to everything else that's out there. Right. Because you can only truly understand the prospects of real estate investment by understanding the relative prospects of other types of right. investments as well. Right. hundred percent. And so I want to I want to learn how and why you kind of, so you started uh, Fortress as a junior at Binghamton. Um, how did your business plan look like? And how long before opening Fortress did you strategize on your thesis and your vision? So I'd love to tell you that it was part of a grand vision and that I'm a genius, but I'm not even close. And <laughs> the reality is when I was growing up, I would basically do anything that would enable me to do a combination of two things. I wanted to be learning, but I also needed to be paid for my time. Right. Because I didn't come from any money and I had, to, I had bills to pay and right, of course. put myself through school and so on. So I'll just give you a little background. So when, when, I, was, when I was 15, I, um, I met a guy on the street. He was like riding this cool new motorcycle. And I was like, you know, it, it, his wife was actually riding it and I saw her riding it. And I, I, I asked him about the bike. I said, it's a really cool bike. I thought cars and, and bikes were cool. He's like, what do you want with my wife? What do you want my wife's bike? <laughs> <laughs> he almost killed me. Well, but, uh, <laughs> but instead he, he realized that I was actually just genu- genuinely curious about the bike right, right. and not the person riding the bike. Right. So uh, comes to pass that I ask, I start asking him all kinds of questions like I, like I would do to everybody I met, just learning about different careers. How do people make their money? Of course. This guy bought this this nice new motorcycle in cash. How did how did he do that? Right. Right. So, turns out he's an institutional guy on Wall Street, working at Maxim Group at the time, which was in the in, in the Chrysler Building right. on the second floor. And over a span of a couple months, I'm just asking him every question manageable. I'm offering to help. Um, and eventually, he says, "Like you care about what I do more than my wife and kids. Like why don't I try to just get you in there?" Right. I was 15. Yeah. I was like. Absolutely. I will do anything. Yeah. Right. Somehow. And this is, this is 2007, uh, summer of 2007, I believe, uh, right before the, the big crash. crash. Yeah. You know, money's flying everywhere. I become like the 15 year old kid in the office. I had to get a work permit just to go to the, right. the office. Cause I wasn't allowed to be on payroll. And I'm like, you know, I'm buying steak sandwiches. I'm building spreadsheets. I'm looking up tickers on, on different platforms. I don't even know how to do this stuff. I'm just trying to figure it out. I'm going to meetings with what, what I later figured out was companies with, with questionable products right. that were coming in to, to raise money <laughs> through a bunch of different vehicles. And I was just trying to learn the business as fast as I could. Right. Studying for the Series 7, I was going through a Series 7 book half the day and just learning the difference between stocks and bonds and options, different types at of derivatives. At 15 years old. At 15. And so I, I made a couple bucks over the summer 
Um, but way more importantly, I developed this this cursory understanding of finance and investments that right. I think most people don't get until yeah. probably college or graduate school or or, or maybe never, depending on. Right. So that was really great. Um, but then what wasn't really great was the that we had the Great Recession right after. And so, you know, my 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 boss at the time, my mentor, Jason, said, um, you can come back next summer, but the thing is, we, we don't have any money to pay you right? because <laughs> <laughs> we just let, we let go half the firm. And yeah, it's gone. <laughs> so, so I was like, OK, that's 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 great. And but probably not a great move because I have no money and I, I need to actually generate. So I started delivering pizza for a while. Mm. And then uh, and then in the span of doing that, you know, I, I, about two years later, I'm at the gym. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm chatting with one of my friends and, and talking about how if Goldman Sachs would just give me an interview, I'd kill it and I'd be better than right. any of those, these <laughs> kids that, that get in. And uh, there was a, a business lawyer nearby and he took a liking to the conversation, wow, okay. ended up uh, offering me a, a job as his apprentice. So I started apprenticing for this business lawyer. This is the age of when Dropbox is becoming a thing. Right. And so he's got a bunch of files and cabinets and it's like super archaic, like all law firms were. And I start taking the files and organizing them online. Little did I know this was going to be like the way that everybody organized their data right. in, 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 in 10 years yeah. from then, which is now. Yeah. And that was a value add. And so I kind of, I, I, I think I, I, I gained some credibility there with him and we had a really good relationship and I pretty much do anything. And ultimately I started meeting some of his clients and one of his clients uh, was, was a real estate investment group. And they had a property that they had bought in in upstate New York. I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And they had a partnership dispute. And there was nobody managing this property right. in upstate New York. This is when I was I was 19 mm -hmm. and I was transferring to Binghamton as a yeah. junior, right? So I was like, I got this. And so I I basically um I I basically pre presented to them that I I A had a grasp on this property right. and I could manage it more cheaply than anybody in the area as a 19 year old as a nine. meanwhile I had, I had no idea what i was <laughs> yeah. doing they didn't know i was 19 right. the partner was in switzerland yeah. and but i i generated a really nice set of invoices and a package and a presentation right. and i i drove my car up to syracuse and got a cheap hotel room and figured i would figure it out right and i had no idea what i was doing right <laughs> so i'm seeing this prevailing theme where you're able to kind of sell yeah. yourself as somebody to uh trust even at an age of 19. How, how important have your sales skills, skills been throughout your commercial real estate career and would you say this is what kind of set you apart from the competition i think i'm probably a really bad salesperson mm. Um, because I, I have trouble giving people, especially people who are about to put up a lot of risk capital. I have, a, I have a lot of trouble just presenting one side mm. because over the years I've seen, I've, I've, I've researched, I've watched so many different asset classes rise and fall. I've seen so many deals from different perspectives that, that looked like they were going to turn out one way and they mm. co totally go sideways. So over time, what I've learned is that you never know what's going to happen. And all you can do is 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 measure the prospects of mm. something that you're looking at going into. Makes me a really bad salesman because if if I'm selling you on one of my deals, right. I'm gonna sit down. I'm not just gonna say like this is the greatest deal ever. You're gonna be honest. Yeah, I'm gonna say these are the prospects of this deal. I feel confident that it that it's a better than average transaction, right. and that's why we're doing the deal. Um, these are the risks. This is what could go wrong. If you preempt that when you're going into a deal. 
not only do you build trust with your limited partners and your constituents, but you also have a game plan going in. The things that are most likely to go wrong, if they go wrong or sideways with a deal, you're already thinking about that ahead of time right. and you have a contingency and you're potentially preventing those issues, right? right? So it's a, it's a, I think it's a really good way to do business. Right. It's not a great way to, to be a salesman, right? And so I've, I haven't really wrapped my head around like how people sell right. um, in a way that they're just able to kind of present the best part of the truth and the prospects. Right. And so I've never, I've never been that good at it. I think people just kind of like, they get to know me and they, they hear enough of my rants and they read enough of my data and then they just, they take a shot. It goes well most of the time. Right. And, and I have really great partners and a really great team. And, and that's, 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 right. <laughs> and then they just kind of programmatically invest, but I don't think it's a function of salesmanship. Got honestly. It. So it's more, it's more, you're just being honest yeah. up front, telling them, you know, this is, this is what it is. I'm going to tell you all the bad news first. And in that way, they kind of trust you more because you're honest and a good businessman in that way. Yeah, and my my perception is as an investor, you don't want um, a salesman, right? Of course, as your general partner. Of course, you actually, you if if you're if you're the kind of investor that I want to have on my on on my team, you're the kind of investor that's actually making your own decisions and wants someone who's presenting you as much information as possible mm. in a concise way, mm. and is presenting you the salient points of each opportunity, right? Um, and so that's, in my view, that, that's not only the way that I try to do business, but that's, that's the kind of investor I want. Right. If you're the kind of investor that just wants to be sold a dream and you yeah. don't want any of the details, I don't want you as an investor. 100%. Right? 100%. So it's, you know, that, I think that's good. That, Understood. Yeah. And as far as, how did you learn the skills associated with being a leader? Is this something you were born with or is it something you, that you developed as you went through your career? Um, I think that... My, my view on leadership is that it's good leadership develops as a function of necessity mm. um, and should develop organically um, and in a, in a humble and conservative way. What I mean by that is if you're starting out in business, your default should be, I'm going to do everything myself and I'm going to understand every process that goes into yep. building and operating this business yep. until the point that my bandwidth is is essentially maxed out. Yeah. And at that point that my bandwidth is maxed out, if the business is is generating enough such that I can fit another person into the cost yeah. structure, I'm going to pick that person really carefully and give them ownership over a part of a business to right. free up my bandwidth to then expand the business to whatever the next level right. is. I'm generalizing yeah. here. Right? So I think that my, my view on leadership has always sort of been you want to have as few people as possible, you want to take as much ownership as possible. And then you want to give some of that ownership to somebody else. Mm -hmm. And then the organization builds organically through that reciprocal process. Got it. Right. And so my, my view as a leader is sort of, you don't want to ever be the boss. You don't want to be the guy that's telling other people what to do. A good leader is the opposite. A good right. leader is someone who is as humble as possible. Brings people up. Taking as much ownership as possible, elevating other people yep. to do those things that that arise, that go beyond the bandwidth of the initial person. Right. Um, and so when I'm hiring people, when I'm dealing with my team, I'm always really just trying to trying to build everybody up as much as possible and give them the opportunity to actually capture as much upside as possible. Amazing. Like if you're if you're a property manager at for for my company, yeah. you know, you could be going around and 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 uh and you know putting out leases and, and doing showings, but you have the opportunity to bring in a big commercial tenant, 
refer a deal, originate a transaction, mm. bring in an LP. You have all of those opportunities, no matter what part of the organization you're in when it comes to the com my company. Got it. So you want to encourage people to be independent thinkers and kind of grow in their position and grow as individuals. Yeah. I mean, in a, in a perfect world, everybody has the ability to rise as far as, as, as they want to, right. to learn as much as they want to learn, to of take course. as much ownership. And the upside should be unlimited in almost every position. Obviously there are exceptions, right? right? We're, we don't live in a utopia, yeah. but generally speaking, that should be the mindset going in. And then of course there are those positions that are just a, a little bit more confined and, and you accept that. hundred percent. Right? So walk us through the mission of your company. What's, what's the long-term vision for this? It's really just about accumulating a portfolio of assets that we can be proud of over the long term and to really just generate better than average returns for all of our LPs right. is the base case target. And then you say like, well, what's better than average, right? There's like a lot of different ways to, to get exposure yeah. to real estate, right? Mm -hmm. You could be in, a, in an ETF, you could be in a REIT, you could be investing in, in bigger private equity deals, you know, shops like, say like a, a Carlisle oh. or a related, right? My thought process is I want to be better returns than the bigger shops because my deals are a little bit smaller mm. and I can find a little bit more juice. Mm -hmm. Quantifying that right now for us, that means transactions in like the, in the five to $20 million per transaction um, range sort of this space where it's big enough where you have some management scale right. and some redundancy, but it's small enough where you could find real juice. You know, we still, we still see deals. We have exits where we've done an excess of 50% IRRs mm. on deals right. that are, are really low risk deals. I'm not talking about development. I'm talking about buy and hold tenant in place, credit tenants, That's credit great. assets. So where I can, where I can generate a, 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 a healthy double digit annual IRR compounded, um, and I can, I can develop a respectable portfolio. That's kind of where I want to be. Amazing. And that's where my team wants to be. I think that's my great. partners agree with me. Great. Yeah. And so you were interviewed, um, for an article last year where you said that trying to predict near-term market movements is a fool's errand in a stable environment. Um, investing is about buying quality assets and positioning to survive in and ideally benefit from, um, extreme uncertainty. Um, was this your viewpoint from the start? Uh, and or did your strategy kind of change from time to time, like from an opportunistic strategy to more of this kind of strategy? Um, I think that it starts with just looking at the world and understanding history, mm. understanding the way that cycles have played out really pertinent to today with what we're going through right now with, with the, particularly the fixed income and the equity yeah. markets. Um, and understanding that there's always going to be a lot of static and there's always going to be a lot of noise, right. right? And you're really no good as an investor if you're not able to sort of develop your own view within all of that noise of and keep that view consistent. A lot easier said than done, right? Like when everybody's yelling in your ear in 2021 yeah. that, you know, real estate is trash and cryptocurrency and NFTs are the way of the future and you're missing out on all these returns. Right. You know, it's, it's actually, it's really hard, I think, for most people to say all these people around me that are winning in the moment on these narratives mm. are, are going to be right long term. And so I think it's, you know, having an agnostic view is the foundation of, of, of being an investor. If you can't have an agnostic view, particularly under pressure, 
it's just it's not even worth getting into the business mm-hmm. um especially in the position of being a steward of capital and so that's kind of what i mean in in that quote in the article is as i'm being i'm being asked you know view on the markets um i think this was at a time when what when was the article 20, 2021 i think january right, so 2021 this is this is the, and can you give me can you give me context on 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 what the quote you have there is again? Uh, yeah, trying to predict near-term market movements is a fool's errand in a stable environment. And investing is about buying quality assets and positioning to survive in and bet, ideally benefit from extreme uncertainty. Yeah, so this was, this was a time when the Fed had just come out with this big stimulus. And the market had been crushed for a second, but then through this massive wave of liquidity, mm. um, the market was buoyed by a combination of things, you know, government buying activity, institutions flowing back in, like basically just this massive mm-hmm. Fed put is the short answer to it. And what I was trying to say is, you know, you, you, like I, I'm, I'm seeing all this and I, I see like from one day, everybody's saying the world is going to end. And the next day, everybody is saying that, you know, markets are back right. and everything is all good. Right. And I'm just trying to say it's neither, right. right? Like in those, in all of those moments, there's an asset class somewhere that's providing you the best risk adjusted return. Of course. Your job as an investor is to, find is to figure out where that is and have conviction in it and, and, and have a reason for what you're doing that you can explain to your constituents. And 100%. that's really what that. And do that, you think it's important to be grounded in, re- in reality and kind of leave emotions out of the equation and focus on what you can control and focus on how you can add value as a, as an investor? A hundred percent. And particularly in real estate, it's about seeing value um, in an in an objective way mm-hmm. that you can back up with history and a comparison to yeah. other asset classes right. that are available. Got it, hundred um, percent. And are you picking different partners for each development based on their skill set, or do you have like a like a core group that you're kind of doing all of this together? So we don't do development. Um, we really only do uh, we do value add in terms of some retenanting, mm-hmm. some light renovation stuff. We try to avoid development as a whole. We think that there are better risk-adjusted returns available in the existing built space. Got it. Just given how much real estate there is out there, there's always things happening. There's changes in the markets. There's liquidation. There's different mm-hmm. motivations for selling. Our thesis is we can basically get in there and optimize whatever the asset is, um, buy it right, that being the most important thing, of course. underwrite it the right way. Um, we don't develop anything. Got it. So, uh, and as far as picking our partners, like I said before, ideal limited partner for us is someone who is sophisticated, understands the asset class, and and when I send them a deal or when one of my partners sends them one of our deals, they can see what our edge is. Right. I love a guy who is you know, for instance, I give you an example. We we have a couple of uh, dialysis centers around the country, okay. mostly Davidas. Mm-hmm. It's a credit tenant. The, the the cap rate for it was you know it was it was it was a it was a five to six cap market now it's probably a six to seven cap market because rates have have come up so much. Um, I love an investor who's like I know what this what Davidas trade for and I see that you guys are getting this for a little bit better than a market deal right. and that's why I'm in Got right. It. Somebody who understands the asset class they understand the value that we bring they like that we manage internally they ask the right questions. Um, and they, they kind of know what to expect. That's a great partner for me. Um, ideally 
I always, I always say to any new LP, um, no single real estate deal is infallible mm. and anything can happen. Mm. We try to do low risk deals. You're always going to have a deal that's low risk at some point that goes sideways and becomes high risk. Right. There is no such thing as 100% across hundreds of deals. Can't predict right? the future. 100%. So what I say to my LPs is, if you're coming in with us, plan to allocate across 10 to 20 deals over the first two to three years. Mm. Because our product to our LPs is essentially a direct exposure to a diversified basket of assets. Mm -hmm. You're my LP. I want you to ultimately have your own portfolio with me where you have 15 or 20 or 30 different income streams from all these different deals. And if one deal runs into an issue, a tenant leaves 10 years from now, got to re-tenant a space, got to to renovate a space, you know, anything could happen. Now your exposure with me, your income component goes down two or three points or four points, right? From where it was and you're really happy. And no matter what happens, you're in a really good position to generate income and upside Mm. across the portfolio. Mm -hmm. So plan to be programmatic. So ideally, you know, a partner that's good for one of my deals is usually a partner that's good for all of my deals. Got it. Is the short answer. Perfect. Understood. Yeah. And how do you attract and partner with uh, institutional capital? Institutions are tough. My experience with institutional guys is that they always come from someone who's been in the business a long time that I've developed a trust with, mm. whether it's one of my partners or... Uh, someone who's, who's been an LP in a couple deals that's happy with the results. Mm-hmm. These institutions have really sticky money. They're very sophisticated. They're careful about who they put their money with. Right. They're very relationship driven. They're not going to find a, a nice, a real, a new real estate guy online and say, let's write this guy. I mean, at least in my experience. Right. So if, I think if you want the institutional money, you have to really go the relationship route and you have to be able to sort of tap into the old guard. And right. what I mean by that is you have to be starting conversations with seasoned guys in the business that have been around longer than you, that know more than you. And you have to be showing them your deals. You have to be not pressuring them. You have to be looking for ways to add value to their lives. Mm. They probably don't need your help. They're probably doing just fine. They yeah. probably don't need anything from you. So you have to you have to put yourself out there as someone who has unique ideas and is willing to work really hard, is willing to help in any way that you can. And over time, those relationships tend to materialize at times that you, you least expect. Mm-hmm. And do you think institutional yeah. capital values um, operators that are kind of industry leaders in a certain specific um, submarket or property type? So I think institutional guys, um, they, I think they have to, by virtue of who their stakeholders are, they have to put most of their money in, in places that are viewed as, as secure reputationally. Right. Like IE, if you're a, if you're a billion dollar real estate investment trust, yep. most of your money has to be in stuff that's easily defensible. So you don't have the liability right. where a, a newer, smaller operator comes in and where I come in is you might have a, you know, a five or 10% budget for a new guy who's bringing you a little bit better risk adjusted returns, a little bit better alpha right. than you're getting in these bigger deals. Right. Um, and so you have to be, if, if you're positioning yourself as, as an entrant, you have to be able to fit that box. Right. Right. So the short answer to your question is like, yeah, you're never going to get an institutional guy to just give you their balance sheet right. and go crazy. Yeah. Right. It starts with a very small check that might become a, a slightly larger check. Goes over time. Or it could be what is a big check for you, but a small check for them. Right. 
Either way, it's going to be a small check for them to start if yeah. they're a sophisticated inst- institutional player. You show them that you bring some value that's alpha to the bigger established guys, which you do by doing creative deals, smaller deals, deals with more upside, right? Deals where you're operating them more attentively than mm-hmm. a bigger guy is, de- is, is operating their assets, right? right? And that's how you get your foot in the door, Got it. In, in my view. And how would you go about conveying staying power to these institutional investors? I think it starts with who you are as a person. Mm. Um, as, as technologically advanced as we're getting relative to the way that we used to be, right. especially the bigger guys, the guys who've been around for a while, they really invest in trust and they invest in people. Mm. Um, and so I think staying power from an institutional standpoint is who is this guy? What's his life like? Mm-hmm. You know, is he spending his weekends, you know, reading The Economist in his library or is he spending his weekends, you know, doing cocaine at a yeah. strip club, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, what, what, like, like if he's, if, and, and again, I'm not saying there aren't great investors that have done that. Right. I'm just saying if you're getting started, you want to be bulletproof in terms of your habits and your values. And you want to convey that to people that you're sitting down with that you're asking to, to trust you with large amounts of money. Right. Um, I made these mistakes in the past in terms of not appearing that way. Mm. I'm, I'm 30 years old. When I got started, when I built my property management company, like I said, I was, I was 19, 20 years old when I got started. Right. I went through the whole cycle of being in college, going to frat parties, going to, to, to clubs, trying to be cool. I went through all that in, in the same time building this business. I've always, been, I've always been spending probably more time than the average person mm. working and reading and, and focusing on my business, but I'm still a person, mm. right? And, and you got to make sure that that's a, a very confined part of your life and that you're, you're signaling to your prospective investors, to your institutional guys, to the older guys you're building relationships with, that you're, what your priorities are, mm. right? And your priorities have to be running a good operation. They have to be treating your people well. Mm. They have to be looking agnostically at the market, understanding the different asset classes, right. seeing what a good deal is, not sending them every deal that hits your desk that's trash, because that's a quick way to get into the spam folder yeah. and then have them not want to talk to you anymore. Yeah, Respecting other people's time. There's a whole list of things, right? How so, do you position yourself? So a lot of it comes down to, so staying power comes down to being personal with the institutional investors and, sh- and conveying to them that you're the type of person that they can trust. Yeah, and, and I would say anything that you can put around you that lends credibility, mm. um, for, for me, one, one superpower is having a, a, a co-founder, one of my co-founders, is, is, his name is Jeffrey Michelle. Amazing guy, written a couple best-selling books. He's my partner. He's been in the business 10 times longer than me. He's mm-hmm. seen 10 times as many deals as me. I was lucky enough to get him on my team as a co-founder. Um, and that's sort of like a shortcut to credibility, right? My, this is a guy who's done over a billion dollars in right. real estate transactions over the last 30 years, right? So... One shortcut to that stability is build a trust over time with someone that's more successful than you, smarter than you, right. more established than you. And if you can get their stamp, that's a shortcut to LPs and 100%. institutions yeah. and credibility. And and you have to really respect that trust and you have to earn that trust, mm-hmm. right? That's a shortcut, right? Another way is, and, and the way that I developed my relationship with, with my partner, Jeff, is um, by simply reaching out and getting conversations started, right? And, build, and and cultivating those conversations over time, even if they don't result in something right, right. away. 
you and I were young. We're in this generation where everything happens, like supposed to happen really fast. Instantaneously. It's yeah. like TikToks and reels and like the faster you can get the satisfaction, it's all fucked up, right? Right. 100%. The reality is, especially in real estate, everything moves really, really slowly, right? So you start conversations. The way that I developed my relationship with Jeff, who became my one of my partners in right. Candor, is I was raising money for these buildings I was buying in upstate New York. I was, I was 23 years old. I had retained a small investment bank to help me raise some money. And they're, they're taking me on the road. They're introducing me to people. I end up in Jeff's office on right. Park Avenue. Right. Um, and he's mainly a bridge lender at the time. He owns a bunch of property. And I'm like, it's nice to meet you. I'm buying all these half a million dollar beat up buildings in mm -hmm. upstate New York and I'm polishing them up and yeah. the returns are really good. He's like, I hate that. <laughs> He's like, your deals are small. Why am I putting money in right. that? They're going to be a pain in the ass. Right. It's like, and, and to me, they, they made total sense. Yeah. Right. Because I was like that the, the, the alpha on them was way better than what, what else is available yeah. in the market and at my scale. It made sense. But the effort for him, it didn't make any sense. So how did you flip that? Right. I didn't flip that. He didn't invest. He's like, I don't like your deal. I'm not investing, but I like you. Mm. Will you meet my son? And I'm like, of course I'll meet your son. He's got this son, Benjamin Michelle, who's also one of our co-founders mm. and our, and our, and our partner. Um, and I meet his son. We, we, we hit it off. He's a brilliant guy, a couple of years younger than me. Um, I help him start his first business. You know, we keep in touch, we become really close, and then we sort of develop a, a relationship over time. And mm. my my relationship with Jeff becomes stronger mm. through mentoring his son. Got it. Um, and the point is, he didn't like my deal. Right. He didn't invest in my deal. I like to. And he ends up being one of the most important partners in my life now, and his son Ben. Understood. And so now we, we you know, so th that's that's what I'm saying in terms of just getting the conversation started and doing it in a respectful way, and just trying to add value however you can. Mm. Right, you're you're the the institutional guy that you meet might not want to invest in your deal, yeah. But he might want you to meet his son, right? And he might he might want your input on a deal he's looking at right. doing, and that could be the thing that turns into something that changes both of your lives. Hundred percent. So you you think it's important to be always open and open to trying different things, open to talking to everyone, learning from everyone that you come into contact with. Yeah, and my 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 partner Jeff always says, um, the one I just referenced, he always says just get in front of people. Right. And it's, it's something that I think is really important to double down on, on discussing because it's something that's becoming more and more distant mm -hmm. to our cultural values yeah. as the, as the young generation that we are. Yeah. Everything is like online, send an email, post an Instagram, you know, there's not as much attention to the value of sitting down in front of somebody. Right. And especially if you want to be dealing in large amounts of capital, if you want to be developing the kind of trust that's around that business, you got to get in front of people. Right. He always tells me this and I'm, I'm bad with it too. You know, you saw it with, with you and me, you, you reached out to me to do this, this podcast and like, I'm texting you three word answers. I got a million things going <laughs> right. on. I don't really know who you are. And then I'm, and then at some point, like I got to get in front of this guy. Yeah. So I came over and we meet each other right. and now this is a whole different thing now. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Just that meeting within that, five minutes of that meeting personal each other. meeting completely changes everything. Totally. Yeah. Right. And so you'll find that. And so getting in front of people, yeah. you never know what's going to happen to the point it's, 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 you, you might think it's going to be one thing and it could be nothing or it could right. be something 20 times bigger, a hundred right. times bigger. That's not going to present itself for another year. Of course. Right. So you have, so to your point, yeah, you go in open-minded and you just try to add whatever value you can. hundred yeah. percent. And do you think that young professionals who kind of take the initiative and are able to 
kind of put their ego aside and and do what needs to be done are going to be in a in a a big fish in a small pond kind of they're going to be left with no competition they're just going to be you know it's like a blue ocean strategy big fish in a small pond is a really good way to put it that's the way you always want to start right uh, you want to develop a, and, and, and Peter Thiel actually talks about this in this really good book, Zero to One, right. that he wrote. Yeah. I recommend anybody who wants to start any kind it's of a business. Yeah. I've read, I read, I reread it a month ago. And he talks about basically every great business starts with the ability to dominate a very small market. Yep. When you try to go into a big market, you're never going to dominate a trillion dollar business or a billion dollar yep. business with a lot of competition. You figure out how to solve one problem in one space in a way that's better than everything else available in that confined yep. situation. And then you have a business, right? And then the extent to which that business can scale and you can relate that to other needs in, a, in an area or a larger area yep. or a vertical is to be determined. But you have a business yep. and that's where it always starts. Yep. So to your point, big fish in a small pond, really important mentality to have, right? For me, working on Wall Street at 15, it was big fish in a small pond right. because I wasn't the smartest guy in the room. I was the dumbest guy in the room, but I was also the only 15-year-old. Yeah, the youngest. <laughs> and I was fitting a very specific need or value or right. desire in that office yeah. at that time, and that made it successful. When I worked for the, the business attorney, I was a big fish in a small pond. I wasn't the best paralegal. I wasn't the smartest guy in the room. I was the dumbest guy in the room again, right. but I was fitting a very specific need that nobody else in the immediate vicinity was available to fill. Mm -hmm. Sometimes being successful and getting to the next level in your career when you're getting started is not about all this big picture stuff. It's just about how can I help and learn in this situation, in this moment, in a way where nobody else is immediately right. available to do this job, no to provide it. this service. And I think that's an important thing for, for, for young people who are getting started is to just center yourself and realize like all this crazy stuff that's going on in your head about everything that this has to be later is right. actually irrelevant, right. right? It's like, get in front of people, be super eager to work, right. be super eager to learn, and you will find that, that big fish in a small pond yeah. moment, yeah. right? You will, right? It's, it's, it's there all around you, right? I think that's that's a really good lesson. And do you think this is like kind of like a muscle finding this these moments uh, over time? You get better and better at it, and opportunities just present themselves to you. Um, or you're able to pick up on opportunities better. I think, yeah, I think I think the muscle is 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 being open minded and eliminating your fear around getting in front of people, mm. asking about their needs. Mm. Um, when you get started and you don't have any experience, there's a lot of insecurity. Right. Now I'm getting started. I don't, I don't know anything. Yeah. I might fail. I might look stupid. And that's not really what's going to happen. You know, people who are the right people who are going to put you in position are not going to think of you as stupid. Yeah. They're not going to they're gonna think of you as, as the opposite. Yeah. Having the, having the, the courage to, to, try. to get in front and get in a room yeah. and try to help without asking for anything in return. Right that's going to get you far no matter what space you're in. And 100%. that's all you need going in, right? 100%. Um, so do you think it's more of an yeah. attitude than it is a, a, a grounded personality trait? Yeah, so, so, so honing it in, the muscle is eliminating your fear, mm -hmm. forcing yourself to take the uncomfortable shot, to reach out, right. to not be afraid to look stupid, right. 
right? This is my first podcast. I might look stupid right now. I don't know. I don't know how, what I'm saying sounds. It might look like a complete idiot. It sounds good, I think. You might have two hours of footage of me sounding like a complete idiot. <laughs> I'm running on, whatever. But I don't care, right? right? There'll probably be more pods. Right. I'll probably get a better feel for this over right. time. But at least You'll you get a better feel over time. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is this is your, your 10th one, Yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And like, I bet you, even just between the first one you've done and this one, Completely different. Night and day. Completely different. You sit here night and day, 10 yeah. and imagine how you're going to be after a hundred. Yeah. Imagine how you're going to be in five years. Getting those right? reps in. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So that the muscle is just, it's simple, yeah. right? Keep it simple. It's just getting in front of people, taking mm -hmm. the shot, jumping into that fear. Right. Right. What's the worst that's going to happen? Yeah. hundred right? percent. It's, it's, there, there's no downside. Yeah. We live in a relatively safe society. This stuff that we're doing doesn't carry high risk. Yeah. And I think yeah. conversations like this, honestly, I think inspire people to, you know, take that shot, you know, do what they've always wanted to do. Like it's, it's something clicks in their brain where, you know what they think, you know what, I'm going to do this today. Today's the day that I'm going to do this. Yeah. I think it's great. And I think if, if, and it's not for everybody, yeah. right. But if you, if you feel that, that compulsion yeah. and that sense, I'm sorry, just, just not. if you feel that, that compulsion and that sense of purpose right. and you feel like that, you know, that, that confined career or that nine to five right. is not right for you, right. it's important to remember that the only way that you're going to get out of that and mm -hmm. the only way that you're going to be able to go down this path successfully is if you start with doing these basic things. Right. You have to eliminate the fear. Of course. You have to put yourself out yep. there. Otherwise, you will fail. Right. You will not even get started, right? And have you always felt this way? Have you always felt that there's something out there that's better for you than you know the normal nine to five route? It started out just being terrified mm. of being mediocre. Not even mediocre. I was, it was almost it was almost existential, mm. right? So for me, it was it was like if I don't push ahead and I don't stay ahead of the game in every regard, and I don't build myself into the type of person um, that adds a lot of value. I'm going to have a lot of regret. Right. So I think the, the main driver was, was existential fear of regret. Right. Growing up, I'm like, if I don't put myself in a position where I have financial freedom, right. to me, freedom meant financial freedom yeah. because I didn't have any money growing up. I couldn't get the toys that I wanted. I couldn't eat the food that I wanted. So like when you don't have any money, you never forget what that's like. Right. Right. And so for me, it was like, I can go down this path. And even if I get you know, a mediocre job or whatever, if I'm not able to meet the people I want to meet, go to the places I want to go, have the impact I want to have, I'm going to have regret. Right. And if I give every day 150% and just burn myself out on taking those shots yeah. and building myself up, it's irrelevant whether I fail yeah. or not because I will not have regret. Yeah. So, it, so, so the fear of regret is what got me started. So if you give short. it your all every day, you don't have to worry about in the future regretting that you didn't do the best that you could have done. Exactly. And this is what people miss a lot. Yeah. You never know if and when and how you're going to succeed. Right. It's pretty clear if you look at almost anybody, especially anybody that's lucky enough to be born in the US or, or especially in New York, yeah. like where we are, yeah. anybody who puts in 150% and is open-minded consistently well over time will succeed yeah. in some way 
So you don't really have to worry about like, are you gonna are you gonna make a living? Are you gonna succeed? Hundred percent. If you're if you're going to that extent, I don't know. You don't know a single person. I don't know a single person who puts in one hundred and fifty percent for a number of years in a specific field and they succeed. commit to and doesn't succeed. Yeah, hundred percent. You're gonna succeed. Are you gonna be a, a a billionaire or a centimillionaire or a decamillionaire? or a single digit millionaire. Who knows? That depends on timing. It depends on luck. Yeah. A lot of the richest guys in the world will say that, right? And they'll mean it, yeah. right? But that's not important, right? You will be successful mm -hmm. and you will be more successful than average right. if you put in that 150. So my thought process going in was like, I just have to do that right now. Right. I don't know where it's gonna go. Yeah. You know, I didn't know I was gonna be a real estate investor when I was 15, right? right? I didn't know I was gonna be a real estate investor when I was 20. I was hedging. I got my I got my economics degree from Binghamton University yeah. while I was building that property management company. I had one client. <laughs> I was making more money than my professors because right. it was a big property. So yeah, that yeah. was cool. But it's like, I didn't know how long that client or that gig was going to last or when the next client was or if someone was going to trust me to actually own and, and, and purchase a property. You take it day by day. You take it day by day. You play your position from where you are. That's the key. 150% mm -hmm. focus, playing your position from where you are, you will succeed. It's kind of simple. 100%. Right? Yeah, I think this is definitely very valuable and definitely something people can apply yeah. to their careers. Um, I want to ask some questions within your operational for your company. Um, how, what are some of your strategies to address, uh, address drastic changes in the market? And is this something that you um, prepare for in your underwriting? Okay. Drastic changes in the market. So most of what we invest in currently is commercial real estate with long-term tenants. Mm -hmm. The key risks in that space, I would say, are, are, are twofold at the top. There's right. lots of risks. Right. The biggest risk of all is, is my tenant going to leave? Are they not going to renew? Right. And the second biggest risk is, what is the rate environment going to be like? What is the financing environment going to be like when it comes time to cash out or refinance the loan mm -hmm. or the loan comes to term? So I'll break that out. From a, is my tenant going to leave standpoint, most of the way that you address that risk is preemptive. Right. When you're looking at a property, you need to interview the tenant. You need to understand their financial position imminently. You have to understand what their plans are mm -hmm. as a business. Yep. Do those plans involve staying in that specific building, whether it's their only building or it's their 800th building? Or growing. You got to figure out, is this, is this guy going to probably stay? Yeah. Right? That's, that's the biggest question, right? And the second biggest question is, if this guy doesn't stay, and I'm surprised because you're presumably doing the deal because you think the tenant's going to be around right. unless you have a different plan. What do I do then? How much is it going to cost me to do that? How long is it going to take the space to get released? And to your point, markets change. Mm -hmm. So the way that I address that and that we address that at, at Candor, for instance, is we always make sure that the lease terms and the rents are, are not only true to market, but in a position where we're going to be able to get a tenant with similar or better economics mm. if that tenant leaves. Okay. That doesn't just mean the rent being true or below market, it also means buying in areas where the demographics are such that we right. believe that there's gonna be a need for that space. So beyond the numbers. By other tenants. For instance, uh, deal that we're closing this week, seven office buildings, medical offices mm. in, in Orlando, Florida. Yeah. We have a 10 year fresh lease with the tenant. 
anything could happen in 10 years. They're, they're a big practice. They're, they're, they've been in business for 50 years. They're, they're pediatricians. It seems like a really stable business. The deal feels really good. But to your point, let's look at the two potential issues, right? Tenants leave in 10 years, yep. right? We're in one of the fastest growing submarkets in the United States. More people are coming in. The real estate is undersupplied on yep. every level. There's a need for office space, medical office space, retail. These properties check all those boxes. So we'll have to come up with a little bit of money. We'll have to get it retenanted. This is, you know, doomsday. Yeah. But those assets will be okay. And in 10 years from now, we'll probably be looking at a different rent environment, mm -hmm. inflation, demographic trends, appreciation. We'll be in a position where we can manage that most likely. On the financing side, using this 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 deal as an example, right. um, our financing is only good for five years. That means on this deal, that means that in five years or less, we're going to have to refinance um, or exit the assets. So, in this and every other deal, that means that in years three, four. I need to be planning for what happens at the end of year five. Yeah, end of year five. Right? right. And so that's part of my deal calculus. Yeah. In this situation, I would respond to a changing market by taking advantage of interest rates falling, which they likely will, if history is any indicator, right. to refinance at the best possible rate at the best possible terms after the period of, of revaluation, meaning the period where, the, where a lender will refinance based not on my purchase price, but on the value, mm -hmm. which is hopefully more than our purchase yeah. price. Um, and so we got to have a plan to refinance or exit the assets within a year or two of, of, of getting to that point. And we have to have a confidence that we can retenant or activate the value in the space if we lose that tenant in 10 right. years. So that's an, every deal is different, mm -hmm. but that's, but those, those are two themes that are common in a lot of real estate deals. Right. So you customize every deal to fully address all the different aspects and be able to sleep at night knowing that if something does happen, you know, you're going to yeah. be fine and your investors are going to be fine. And if you want to be an investor or an operator, you got to do that right. because every LP I go to that's a smart LP already has those questions lined up Always, the yeah. second that I show them the deal. Yeah. If they have half a brain, they're like, I've seen a building go dark. I've seen a refinance fail. I've seen a foreclosure happen. What are you going to do to make sure that this doesn't happen? Right. And if I'm not ready for that, then I'm not ready to own this piece of real estate. Right. Right. Gotta have that foresight up front. Definitely. 100%. Yeah. And how did you leverage rejection from investors in your first few deals to reevaluate your strategy and your deals? <clears throat> so, we all have weaknesses. And my biggest weakness is, I've, as I've learned and learned again, um, is that I have a tendency to run on. Mm. I'm really technical. And I try to cover all the bases when I'm in a conversation. Right. And a lot of times I say too much. And a lot of times I lose people because I say too much. So what I'm, what I'm trying to learn over time is how to be more concise, mm. how to get to the point. Right. Guys with a lot of money to invest have a lot of people asking them to invest in stuff. They don't have time. They don't have time. They don't necessarily think that the details that I think are important are important. Yeah. And all that really matters is what they think are, is right, important exactly. if they're going to invest in my deals. So I think the lesson for everybody else is you got to figure out what your weaknesses are right. and you have to be honest with yourself and you have to make an effort over time to 
make those changes to address those weaknesses. And you also have to to, to be kind to yourself and know right. that it's going to take time to make those changes. Definitely. Because old habits die hard. I'm sure some of the questions you asked me today, I took way too long to answer and I ran around a little bit. No, but that's okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> um, but do you think that like when somebody pitches to an investor, they should do like a post-game analysis, understanding what they did right, what they did wrong, what they could improve, putting their ego aside and kind of taking a long-term vision saying that, you know what, like I may have done this wrong, but in the next meeting, I'm not going to do that. Openness to feedback. Right. Whenever you pitch somebody, yeah. whenever you meet somebody, um, it's even more important than getting the investment or not getting the investment. Um, I take that back. Getting the check is the most important thing. You need the check to survive. You right. need the check to do your deal. Yeah. The second most important thing, which becomes the most important thing, is being open and grateful for the feedback. Right. You're not coming in. That's totally, that's totally fine. I want the opportunity to understand yeah. why this wasn't a fit for you, feedback, yeah. why this wasn't a fit for investors like you yeah. in your position. The feedback you'll get from that is transformative over time. Yeah. So yeah, get, get, get the feedback and be totally open to it and don't be defensive right. and don't try to go back into a pitch yeah. when they're giving you the feedback, right? right? They don't want to do the deal. That's fine. You're going to lose the relationship if you push people. Don't put, don't be pushy, right? Genuinely wanting feedback right. is saying, I'm not going to try to change your mind here. I'm really just trying to learn from you. Mm -hmm. And they'll respect that. Yeah. And do you think investors sometimes, uh, do you think indirectly that sometimes becomes a pitch where you're taking feedback and then the investor starts to grow to like you because you are very able to put your ego aside and learn? Yeah. And I think, Again, it goes back to, to something we touched on earlier, which is what type of person do you want to signal that you are right. to build institutional trust, mm -hmm. to build the trust of, of a larger capital allocator? Yep. No capital allocator that's got scale and experience is going to want to invest in someone that they view as arrogant, mm -hmm. that they view as someone who doesn't feel like they have more to learn. Yep. Um, another mistake I made in my early 20s. I presented my deals like I really knew everything mm. because I had because I believed I did mm. and I had done so much analysis and I had done all the homework, but I didn't realize that that wasn't the point. Right? You never know everything. Yeah. Right? So that humility is critical. The second you lose that humility, mm -hmm. any intelligent investor is going to see right through it. Right. And they're going to see that you have blind spots right. that are going to become a liability in the future. And you're upfront with your humility. You kind of put the bad news first, the downsides first to kind of show what they're getting into. Totally. Good news, bad news. You always want to be a person that starts with the bad news. Right. If you're going to be controlling capital and making investments. 100%. Yeah. Uh, let's say someone watching this right now wants to do exactly what you did and wants to, you know, kind of be entrepreneurs, start be in the real world by themselves and kind of navigate by themselves. Should they, do you recommend that they work at a big shop like CBRE or JLL for a couple of years, get a couple of years of experience, get a couple of years of connections, or should they just start? I would say, in my view, there's two real ways into the business. You're starting with nothing. You don't have any connections. Right. You just know that you want to be in investments. You want to be in the real estate business. Mm -hmm. You want to have that freedom. You want to have that unlimited upside. You can go into property management. 
or you can go into brokerage. Right. Meaning you can manage property for other people or join a firm that manages property for other people and work within that firm to learn how property is operated. Mm -hmm. Or you can get directly involved in introducing buyers, sellers, leasers, leasees, which is brokerage. Right. The choice to either get into that property management or brokerage has to do with who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. And until you decide who you are and who you want to be as a person, you can't make that decision. Right. What I mean by that is the skill set to be a great property management professional is almost 100% different from the skill set of being a great brokerage. Yep. Being a great property management professional is I am organized. I am methodical. I like to develop systems. I like to solve problems that emerge over and over and over again in a redundant way. Right. And I believe that I can also coordinate teams of other people to solve those problems mm -hmm. in an organized way. That's essentially property management. From a, it's a generalization, but brokerage is, I love getting in front of people. I love selling. Right. I love running around and meeting every guy on the block that owns everything, yep. trying to introduce him to anybody that can help him. I love seeing deals constantly. I always want to see a new deal every day. Um, I'm not afraid to, 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 to get in front of people, to push people, to follow up constantly, right. to fail. That is the brokerage skill set for a successful broker. So I think going backwards, if I'm getting started, I went the property management route. It, part of it was an element of chance. Right. Right? I told you about that opportunity that came up. Part of it was I hadn't fully developed my confidence to the point where I felt like I'd be really good in brokerage. Um, and I hadn't even really considered it. Right. But to your question, I'm, everybody's different. So you have to ask yourself, am I going to be better in property management? Am I going to be more effective? Am mm -hmm. I going to add more value there based on who I am right now? Or am I going to be more effective in right. brokerage? And do you think that if people don't know whether or not you know, they would be good in one or the other. Should, you, should they try both? Like for example, an internship in property management and an internship in brokerage and kind of see where their talents and interests lie. Yeah, if you really, if you really don't know, like if you can't answer the question right. of, are you a high energy salesman? Let's say it's a, a young mover professional. And a doesn't yeah, really know. yeah I'm, I'm putting, putting myself, putting you in, put, let's put ourselves in the shoes of someone who's, who's young school, and wants yeah. eight, 18, 19, right. 20, still in college, right. has never ha even had a real job maybe, right? right? If you can't answer the question of, am I someone who sells? Am I a people right. person? If you don't really know, maybe you're a little bit of both. Yep. I would say, put the feeler out there, apply to some of the best firms and some of the smaller firms, right. some of the boutiques yep. in each space. Try it out. And just take whatever you get the best feel on because you don't have enough information to really know, 100%. right? But whatever you do, it's going to be a positive move. You're uh -huh. going to know a lot more after that first opportunity Definitely. than you know now. 100%. And how do you go about setting goals for yourself and for your company? So I personally have learned to really hate goal setting. Mm. And this is, I know this sounds kind of weird. Um, but when you really think about what success is um, over the long term, people that build great companies, um, people that make really good investments, 
whatever, whatever measure of success typically boils down to processes and habits. Mm. And over the long term, if you look at any example of success, you'll find processes and habits behind that success mm -hmm. and you'll find the goals were sort of irrelevant. Right. Um, the reason that I'm so against goal setting is when you, when you just want to get to a certain arbitrary point, I want to make a million dollars. Right. You can't reverse engineer that to the processes and habits and actions that actually get you there. Because a million dollars is an arbitrary thing. A million dollars is, could be winning the lottery. It could be your grandpa dies and gives you a million dollars. It could be you're really lucky on your first deal and right. there's some element of upside that you right. didn't notice that gets you a million dollars, right? So that's just an example, but almost every goal that you put out there yeah. is, is some variation of that. Instead, you wanna think, who is the type of person mm. that is most likely to make a million dollars if I want a million dollars. And become that person. I'm not saying that that's the goal. Yeah. Who is the type of person that makes a million dollars? Who is the type of person that ends up in a leadership position? Who is the type of person that is successful in investments? Mm -hmm. um, and then you start to get some actionable answers. Right. This person is disciplined. This person continues to learn about the same subject matter that's important to them when times get tough. Right. This person is open to feedback. This person gets in front of people, mm -hmm. right? And then you distill that. How can I be a person that has discipline? How can I be a person that gets in front of people? Right. Some examples, some things that I've ingrained over time. I didn't always do this stuff. Mm -hmm. I journal every single day, organize my thoughts. Great. Even when I'm in a really bad mood, you do it. I go to the gym five times a week to clear my head. It's healthy. It centers the energy, right? It releases a lot of hormones that are really helpful in balance, mm -hmm. right? I'm not saying this is for everybody, right. but you start building your day one by one, developing habits that are those habits of that person, mm -hmm. whoever that person is. If that person could be, you know, it could be a, it could be a, a, a David Rubenstein right. of, of Carlisle. It could be an Elon Musk. It could be a Warren Buffett. It could be a Benjamin Graham. It could be anybody, right? What are the habits? You, you ingrain those habits, you're gonna be on the way to being that person Definitely. that achieves those goals. Yep. And the goals are gonna be achieved because you're the person with those habits and those values. Right. They're not gonna be achieved because of the goals. The goals are actually distracting, right? Especially when the goals are, are big goals, right? If your goal is like, let's, let's take the pod for example. Right. Your goal is to get to a million subscribers on this pod, right? right? You wake up every day and you start with, I'm not at a million subscribers. You're going to be really miserable. Right. And, and then what? Even if you get to a million subscribers, you had a bunch of failure and misery followed by a, a day of victory and then an effervescent feeling of success followed right. by more misery. Yeah. It's like, is that the way you want to live? Or do you want to wake up every day and say, my goal today is to add five subscribers mm. and to make my content a little more polished. Right. And to reach out to another 10 really great people every day. Right. Where do you think that's going to lead? 100%. So you think that goal setting shouldn't be necessarily setting quantifiable metrics. It should be setting a goal for where, what kind of a person you have to become in order to get these quantifiable, quantifiable metrics as a, like a, as a backdoor, basically. Like becoming the person that you 
envision yourself becoming. Exactly. Process. Right. Things that you can control today. Control, yeah. You cannot control a million subscribers today. Right. You can control 10 reach outs. Right. You can control getting those five or six right. people to subscribe to the pod. Right. You can make that happen. Right. And incrementally, that becomes, not only will that get you to your goals, it may exceed your goals. Right. And even if it doesn't exceed your goals, it's going to get you as far as you can possibly get. Definitely. Definitely. 100%. Adam, what has been the most difficult point in your career and how did that shape you as an individual from that point on? Um, a couple of years into accumulating properties upstate. Started accumulating um, low-income properties. And the economics on these low-income properties seemed like tremendous on the way in. Mm. They were fully occupied. They were able to be had at cap rates north of 20% on any reasonable expense ratio. Right. So I was excited about the deal. We ended up picking up a bunch of these low-income properties. Something like over 200 doors we bought for like $2.5 million. It's like pretty unbelievable. Yeah. The reality is that the correct expense ratio for certain low-income properties is not 60 or 70%, but 160 or 70%. Because what happens is you have tenants that are not any form of credit. They will absolutely destroy property. You won't be able to get them out. When you finally do get them out, you'll have to completely renovate a property. And then you will find that your most conservative assumptions on net income were grossly inaccurate. And you basically have a, uh, a freestanding money pit. Right. I learned this the hard way. So we took a bath on these properties. We put a lot of money into them. We lost money on the deal. We got out. But what I learned was no amount of underwriting can replace experience in operating in an asset class. Right. Foresight. Um, even the most conservative assumptions can become the wrong assumptions if you don't really know your tenant, mm -hmm. you don't really know uh, what your levers are in a specific asset with a specific tenancy. Um, and that was what the mistake really came down to. Mm. That was what the failure came down to. It was incredibly painful because I didn't have as many assets as I have now. And it made a huge difference to me. And effectively made no money that year because that deal was, you know, it, it was, that, that was the upside. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't existential. It didn't lose any properties and go bankrupt or anything like right. that, but it was my first losing deal and it, it felt really, really bad. And I took it really personally um, and I got really depressed for a while. Mm. Uh, and then ultimately I got through it and I realized that, you know, not every deal will be a winning deal and you will have losers no matter right. who you are. And you have to learn how to, to carry on and right. not lose your, your, your mojo right. and your effort in that process. Would you say you've gotten better at uh, moving on faster over failures and learning from them like right away, understanding what you did wrong and applying that right away and shifting that focus to the future? Yeah. What I learned is you have to be able to accept your failures and you have to be able to forgive yourself for your right. failures. And what's really important is <clears throat> doing the right thing as quickly as possible right. when you realize that you've made a mistake, learning from the mistake, acknowledging it, 
and building systems, frameworks, thoughts that prevent you from making the same mistake twice. Mm. And that really, that, that's, that's all you can do and yeah. that's all you should do. Mm. But more, most importantly, you need to forg forgive yourself. Right. You cannot allow a small or large failure to change your momentum of progress. Because at the end of the day, you're still human. You know, P people make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Yeah. Um, and we all know a lot less than we think we do. Yeah. 100%. And if you zoom out and look at trends in your interests and your skill sets, what's the overall theme that led you to this point today? I can't help but spend a huge amount of time trying to see and understand value in the world. Mm. I look around every day and I look not just at buildings, right. but I look at the coffee shop that I'm buying my coffee from. I look at the materials around us. Right. I look at everything and I try to understand what the value is and mm -hmm. where it's going. Right. And I think that seeing and understanding value in a consistent way is the most important thing uh, for an investor. Mm -hmm. And I think that my, my inclination and my sort of obsession with always seeing value and understanding the way it interacts in the world right. is what drives a consistent investment approach. Right. 100%. And who do you learn from at this point in your career? Uh, I try to study the greats in my view. Mm -hmm. uh, like I said, uh, David Rubenstein, right. Carlisle. I watch a lot of his interviews with other people. I, I just ordered his book. I'm hoping to read that. Um, Warren Buffett was a big one growing up and more so his, his lesser talked about mentor, Benjamin Graham, yep. who was before Warren, and he really developed the, the principles and the framework for value investing. Yep. So trying to study their moves over time and their values over time and imbibe the, the, the values of these guys that have been successful over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. um, those are the guys that I study the most. Great. And I think the guys I study the second most, um, or maybe equally so, are the newer guys who are more innovators um, and who move faster. Mm. And... And, and think a little bit more outside the box. And those are the Peter Thiels, the Elon Musks of the world. Um, those guys, you know, the Larry and Sergeys, the guys who are at the, at the cutting edge of technology um, are also really important to learn from because 100%. it's not the same as it was in 1960. 100%. So you have the combination of really strong foundational principles that work in investments, and you also have to have that innovative mindset. Right. And so I study those people to try 100%. to develop that. Great, great. Yeah. And what drives you nowadays? Is it money, personal achievement, family, philanthropy? And when would you say you've succeeded? I just want to be able to continue living the life that I'm living now. Mm. I'm in a place right now where I feel really good about the deals that we're doing. I feel really good about our partners. Um, I feel like we're adding a lot of value. Uh, I feel like we're learning a lot and I just try to think of every day as an exercise in continuance of that lifestyle, right? Get up, go to the gym, train, read, learn, try to find a really good asset somewhere at a really good price and just move on it. Mm. And that's what I want to do for the rest of my life. Great. And I have my last question to wrap it up. Yeah. What advice would you give your 22 year old self about life, business and relationships?
Be open-minded. Eliminate your fear. Take every shot that you can, Mm. especially when you're sad and when you're scared. Get in front of people. Drive all of your insecurities and all of your fears. Channel them into just taking the action. And I promise you, the outcome will be positive, regardless of whatever it is. Um, That would be my advice. Amazing. That's great. Adam, this has been a great podcast and there's definitely a lot of value to be gained from this. And I hope the young professionals watching this will apply it to their career moving forward. Thank totally. you so much. Really Happy appreciate to be here. It. Thank you. Amazing.